Israel often prides itself on being the most moral army in the world. Whether you subscribe to that or not, there is a long history of ethical thinking that influences its operations on the ground. This week on What Matters Now, I, Amanda Borshel-Dan, speak with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, the author of a new and extremely timely book, Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View on War and Morality. Brody is the executive director of Matai, an organization that's dedicated to helping Jews navigate dilemmas regarding aging, end-of-life treatment, and organ donation. His previous book, A Guide to the Complex, Contemporary Halachic Debates, was a National Jewish Book Award winner. In our wide-ranging conversation, we speak about the history of Jewish military ethics, starting from the Bible through rabbinic literature and blossoming of thinking from just before the foundation of the state and onward. The applications of military ethics in the current Israel-Hamas war are basically unprecedented. We hear about how taking a stance of self-defense may help guide Israel as the conflict continues and potentially spreads. So this week, we ask author Shlomo Brody, what matters now? You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So... Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Shlomo, thank you so much for joining me in our Jerusalem office today. Amanda, it's wonderful to be here. We're here to discuss your new book, Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View on War and Morality. And first of all, just tell me about the headline, the title of the book, Ethics of Our Fighters. I think you're you're quoting something there. Yeah, it's a play on words of Ethics of Our Fathers, which is the famous uh, book in the Talmud that talks about moral you know, ethics and uh, sort of ideas that we are familiar with in Jewish teachings about ways to be a good person. And um, the point of the title here is to talk about the fact that throughout Jewish history, we never really developed an ethics of our fighters because since really Talmudic times, and even you could go back even to biblical times, for almost 1800 years, we didn't have Jewish fighters. And so the title is trying to give this uh, connotation of saying something's new here that I'm trying to develop in this book, which is what does it mean to be a Jewish warrior? And yet we still draw on the past. And so it's a bit of an alt-noise subject, shall we say. And I would like to start actually with the Bible and talk about different uh, issues in the Bible 
from which we can perhaps draw some lessons of what's happening even right now. For example, a story that keeps echoing through my mind is the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and in which uh, Abraham, of course, is telling God, no, we can find 10 just people. We don't need to destroy these places. And I, I just hear so many echoes of this happening throughout, uh, reverberating throughout Israeli society right now. And in terms of the way that people are thinking of, of the Gazans in the Gaza Strip during this obviously tragic war that Hamas began on October 7th. Yeah, there's no doubt that the Bible has a lot of different passages and stories about warfare, which can give us different types of principles, and sometimes you might feel even conflicting values. And the story with Abraham, there's no doubt, uh, his argument is says, don't kill the innocent along with the guilty. And that's a very powerful argument, and I certainly think that's one of the principles that we should try to maintain, which is individual responsibility and to only target those that are actually harming us and the combatants in particular, of course. Um, that said, you know, people have also been invoking other passages from the Bible, uh, including, let's say, the story of Amalek and, you know, the idea that you have to wipe out this evil nation. In fact, it even came up in The Hague uh, when they quoted some out of context in many ways, but a statement of Prime Minister Netanyahu who invoked this notion of destroying an entire evil nation. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's very important to look to the Bible for values and principles, but we also have to understand that the Bible itself teaches us different types of values and principles. And part of the argument I try to make in the book is to say that what it means to be a Jewish fighter is to retain all of these values at once, to always to be keeping these in mind. And what was really fascinating to me throughout writing the book and when I was researching it, which I didn't know beforehand, was how many early Zionist figures, religious and non-religious alike, quoted stories from the Bible. It could be from the book of Joshua, could be the story of Abraham, and in different ways. And they brought up as in cabinet meetings. And it was sort of one of those things like, wow. And you see how um, Jewish values and the Jewish narrative really has deeply impacted uh, the Israeli society. The founding fathers were very literate, at least biblically, perhaps less so Talmudically, or in terms of the Chazad, the Mishnah, and things of that nature. And what are you finding in these writings, the Mishnah, the Talmud, that we're bringing forward into our contemporary warfare? Yeah, I mean, it's already in the times of the Talmud, there isn't a whole lot of Jewish power. Right? In the biblical era, you have Jewish nations, you have Jewish army, in the Talmudic period, there's certainly discussions about warfare, a little bit less than you would uh, expect given the biblical legacy. And I think it just has to do with the reality that they were dealing with. Uh, but you do see some important distinctions about when you'd say a war is really mandated uh, to go to, uh, particularly wars of self-defense. There's such a notion. And a separation then to types of wars which are seen as discretionary or optional. Uh, and that's an important distinction. Uh, one of the things I try to develop in the book is that there are some wars of self-defense where it's really imposed upon you. Uh, certainly, I think of the 73 war like that, and I think October 7th will be along those lines as well. But there are also times where you might want to take preemptive or even preventative action. And the Talmud uh, relates to the ethical dilemmas of that. You're starting a war when you don't have to. It's not necessarily an imminent threat, but it's a grave, incredible one. And I think that one of the things we're going to need to think about as we deal with this mechdal, as they call it in Israel, uh, the fallout from October 7th is, do we make mistakes in not acting preemptively or preventively 
against Hamas, against Hezbollah, against others, uh, before tragedy struck, before they struck us first. And so I think that Talmud won't necessarily give us clear instructions on this, of course, but can help establish an ethical framework, which can be enlightening for us in thinking about these dilemmas. And since there was no Jewish sovereignty until, of course, 1948, I imagine that since the Holocaust, since the foundation of the State of Israel, there's just been an explosion of thinking about the military, about how a Jew can be in the military, about having a sovereign state, having an army, all of these kind of things. Are you seeing just a, a huge blossoming of thinking post the State of Israel? Absolutely. But it, it starts a little bit even earlier. I mean, in World War One, you had well over a million Jews fighting on both sides, by the way, which is also interesting. And so that already spurs a certain amount of discussion. But once the Zionists realize they're going to have to fight to get the state of Israel, um, that, that debate really emerges. And one of the fascinating ones is between 36 and 39 during the Great Arab Revolt. And there's a real heated debate about how we can respond to Arab terror. And that's where the Haganah and the Etzel develop their disputes. And the whole term of purity of arms, Tarat Neshek, emerges in 37. So you already see the beginnings of that conversation emerging in this time period. And rabbis are involved, and uh, politicians are involved, and intellectuals are involved. And of course, the average citizen is involved. And it's one of these things where we really have to think about these issues. This isn't like an armchair conversation for us. Um, we really have to deal with it. But of course, once we have an army in 48, uh, the issues become really acute. And um, I think that one of the great things that we see is the Jewish tradition, despite the fact that we had many centuries of powerless situation where we didn't have to deal with this on a day-to-day -day level or certainly on a regular level, nonetheless offered a lot to that conversation. Uh, and, you know, I think people get a little bit afraid when they hear, oh, the IDF for Israeli society is influenced by religion because, you know, religion can be a source of fundamentalism and religion can be a source of violence. And we know that, we certainly know that from our neighborhood, right? We know that, but I think one of the things I try to show in the book is that religion can also be a great source of ethical teachings and restraint on warfare. And I think in many ways, that is part of the legacy that the Jewish tradition brings to Israeli society, which is introducing a number of different values that can help us think through the ethical dilemmas, including when we have to restrain ourselves because we believe, for example, that all humans were created in the image of God, to take one you know, important example. So um, you see this explosion of ideas, of course, so emerging post-48. The impetus for your book, if I'm not mistaken, actually came from a secular IDF officer who spoke to a group of students you were shepherding. And that to me is very interesting because you think ethics, oh, Judaism, ah, rabbi. But actually what you're saying is it's a very practical concern in the IDF. It is a practical concern. And I don't think the IDF per se is looking to religion uh, you know, as a source of their ethics. Um, they have a whole system, partly it's based on international law, uh, which you know is a very important, of course, for practical reasons. And there's a group of ethicists that have advised over the years the IDF. But you know, we're in a Jewish country. There's a lot of uh, religious fighters, and even not religious, but people are certainly inspired by Jewish narrative and, and tales. And so, I think it's actually quite important to introduce uh, Jewish teachings 
into that conversation to make people feel like this is genuine to who they are and to our society. Um, the book, as you mentioned, was inspired in many ways by a, a, a non-religious Israeli, a very, very prominent philosopher. I won't name him, but his grandfather was a very, very prominent rabbi as well. You know, Sabashili Harayal Rav, as they say in Hebrew. And at this event that, that I was hosting about the IDF Code of Ethics, one of the students asked him, well, what does the Jewish tradition have to teach about this? And he sort of dismissed it out of hand and said, the only thing it will teach us are all sorts of horrible things from the Bible. I don't want to get near that. And the room exploded when he said it. Uh, but, but he had a point, right? He had something, what he's trying to say is that, are you sure you want to introduce religious values to this conversation? And my argument is yes. And I actually think that we've had really great rabbinic figures like Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, who I speak about a lot in the book, who was very concerned about having a strong military that can win wars and understood the moral imperative of self-defense, but also understood that we have to fight ethically and we have to fight in a moral way that is uh, sanctifies the name of God as the Kiddush Hashem. And so uh, I think that um, despite the bad press sometimes that the religion gets for its military ethics and sometimes, you know, without, you know, with reason, right? Sometimes uh, there's a basis for that. I think that there's a rich Jewish tradition that can help inform Israeli conversation in a very meaningful way. Let's dive into some of the um, big challenges that Israel has faced. And you mentioned already Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, and he was, of course, uh, the chief rabbi of the military when uh, in the 1967 war, the Six Day War, and so he was all of a sudden presented with a huge challenge: uh, the the West Bank. What do you do with the population? Uh, what do you do about settlement? Things of that nature. Tell me a little bit about what he thought. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, rabbi Gorin was certainly involved in these conversations, and. Um, you know, I think that the whole question of land for peace, for example, which has become so prominent in years, but as I show in the book, it already emerges in 37. There's a partition plan that's being presented. And it, this question comes up about, you know, giving up on certain territories. Are we going to make this statement? So it comes up again in 47 and 56. And, and it really comes up a lot of times. And I actually think that that conversation has been in some ways, um, because of the political dilemmas, been uh, distorted. Because the real conversation in my mind is, how do you orient your framework in thinking about these issues? Is it one in which you think in terms of conquest? There's like a biblical mandate. And the goal basically is to conquer as much territory as you can, because that's our biblical imperative. And as long as we can win the war, you should fight the war. Or do you put a framework and develop a framework of thinking about these issues in terms of defense and security? And I, I think that um, already in 48, you see this dilemma. And I certainly think that the better and more appropriate and more genuine uh, Jewish framework to think about these issues is in terms of questions of self-defense. And so that means that sometimes you conquer territory because it is necessary for people to live in security and for Jews to live in their homeland. And it could mean that sometimes you're willing to compromise on territory uh, because that's better for our self-defense. Once you make that statement, of course, you can have you know reasonable people disagree on a political level, what's right and what's wrong, and that certainly is going on, but that's no longer a religious question in my mind. That's a now a question of just sort of politics and, and, and understanding security needs. Um, so I, I think that that's a really important question that we need to think about today, which is, 
you can argue for the sake of uh, self-defense and the sake of developing a Jewish homeland, which is a moral imperative, that we need to build settlements or build in certain areas. Um, and you can also argue that we shouldn't build in certain areas because we want to make space and remove tensions with our Palestinian neighbors. Um, I think that that's true. Of course, you have to make a political assessment based on well, what's wise in this scenario that we have today. But that's why I think you find that there are some great rabbis throughout the you know past decades who are okay, at least conceptually, with the concept of land for peace. Um, now, you might argue that's not a very good idea today, um, but I don't want to go there because I don't think that my contribution here is a political analysis, a strategic analysis. What I'm trying to do is set up the proper moral framework of thinking about these issues. The minute that you start talking about self-defense, there could be some who would think that that's a weak position to start from, that the strong position would be offense, not defense. But I, I think you might have some nuance here to explain to us why that's not true. Yeah, no, self-defense doesn't mean that you're always being defensive. Self-defense means you're thinking about what is it I need to do to protect my security, to protect both my citizens and my soldiers. Sometimes that means you need to take actions. You need to go on the offensive. Um, and that's you know part of the ethical challenge and a strategic challenge we have to think about. I don't think there's any weakness in orienting our ethical framework around defense and security. I think that's an appropriate way of thinking about it. And keeping in mind, there's a tremendous weakness about thinking in the other direction of power and of control, which is you might end up going too far, not just on an ethical level, but get yourself in all sorts of trouble, all sorts of strategic quagmires and and, and bad wars because you go too far. And one of the questions we always have to ask, and we have to ask this now today, uh, February 1st, right, when we're thinking about where we are this war is, what is the justification for continuing war? Not just the justification of going to war in the first place, but we're in the midst of a war. Right? What is our goals given the reality? Right? So October 7th, we understood why we're going to war. Now, February 1st, we have to ask, what are we trying to accomplish? Given the reality of what we have on the ground, given the threats that we have to deal with. And uh, that's a perfectly legitimate question to ask because you're framing around, my goal is not just to win and not to have control. Of course, we want to do that, but my goal is to protect my security. What actions do I need to take in order to do that? Which sometimes might be to end the war. I'm not proposing that. I'm just putting it out as a framework. Um, Israel, and I discussed this at length in some of the later chapters in our book, made some mistakes over the years about going a little bit too far. For example, in the first Lebanon war in 82. Um, and America did this with Iraq and Afghanistan and Vietnam, and there are many other examples from around the world. So um, if we keep in mind this framework of thinking about what's best in the given moment for our defense, we're gonna end up saving ourselves from a lot of big mistakes. Do you appreciate Times of Israel podcasts and our truly independent journalism reported directly from wartime Israel? Has the Times of Israel become important for your understanding of Israel and the Jewish world during this time of rising global anti-Semitism? If so, please join others like you who support our work by joining the Times of Israel community. For as little as $6 per month, you'll get an ad-free experience of our site and apps, exclusive TOI community content, and most importantly, you'll become partners of ours in ensuring media coverage of Israel that's professional, factual, and fair. For more information and to join, just go to 
timesofisrael.com slash join. Let's talk about other uh, potential mistakes that Israel has made throughout the sovereignty of the state of Israel. Oh, you know, it's a tough question. There have definitely been areas where we've made mistakes. Um, I'll give you one example I write about a lot. In 73, we had warnings. Um, It wasn't just an intelligence warning about the impending attack, but it seems that we made a decision uh, to not strike first even though we had a knowledge of what was going to happen that day in Yom Kippur a few hours beforehand, because we were worried about American support and Kissinger and whatnot. And I think that was a grave moral mistake. Um, You know, you have to prioritize always doing the actions that are going to save your people's lives, which is the whole point of the self-defense orientation. Um, I I think one of the biggest mistakes we made in our military history uh, is that it was really wasn't so much of the population, but on the government level. In 82, when we went to war in Lebanon against the PLO, uh, the cabinet made a certain decision of having more limited war. And the defense minister, Ariel Sharon, took it much further. That is a grave moral error to make such a decision. You have to come to an agreement. You have to know the goals of your war when you go to war. And, and so that's very important. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that obviously there have been certain incidents that have come up over the years where mistakes have been made. But but it's important to keep in mind, just because there's a human error, there's a mistake, doesn't mean that the whole system was acting immorally or that the whole war was immoral. So there's no doubt that sometimes we shoot at targets that we think are certain targets and end up being the way we make mistakes. There's human error, there's pressure, there's technological error, there are a lot of things that go on. We have to understand that um, precise warfare is not always precise. And you can have precise weapons, but mistakes happen anyway. And we have to be willing to tolerate those such mistakes. And one of the things that happens because of the media today and the, what I call the CNN effect, although I guess it's dating me when I call it that, right? It should be like the Instagram effect. The TikTok effect. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, we have images that come out. And we see these images and they move us, right? They're difficult images to see, but they don't necessarily tell us anything about the moral status of the action that was taken. That's a big mistake to make. And one of the things we sometimes have to do is to build up our moral fortitude and understand why we're fighting and how we're fighting. And even when other people don't like it, we have to stand up to that. Um, In the book, I discuss an example in 96, we had a war, sort of a battle going on with Lebanon. And there was an errant missile. Uh, Naftali Bennett actually was involved in it because he was fighting and he called in for help. And the missile ends up hitting a UN compound and kills a lot of non-combatants that are hiding there, um, that are taking refuge there. And based on international pressure, because of all these horrific images from it, Prime Minister Perez decides to pull back from the whole operation. Huge mistake. Right? And that's a moral error because we went to war for a reason. And be, the fact that there are mistakes that happen doesn't mean that it was an immoral action. And we have to be honest with ourselves in, in, in terms of those decisions. Of course, war is fought both on the battlefield and on the international diplomatic field. And so these optics are part of the equation in, in deciding whether to continue and, or not, right? It's not only about the morality here. 
Absolutely. I mean, you, you can't ignore the optics and because it has you know, huge diplomatic implications, uh, which, of course, can also have military implications. I mean, just think about the issues that are coming up now with arms supplies. Uh, you know, if you have horrific optics, countries that you sort of depend on one form or another for certain armaments might not be willing to provide it to you. That's a real issue. Um, I mean, it might be a moral flaw of that country to make that decision, but you have to deal with that political reality. So there's no doubt that there is an imperative um, to do good diplomacy and to try to do what we call here Hasbara and to explain what we're doing. But I also think that we have to be uh, realistic about how effective our Hasbara is going to be. Meaning I actually think Israel's done a lot better job this time than in the past. There's obviously more that can be done. And yet we're fighting up against a huge amount of anti-Semitism, a huge amount of an industry that's really against us. And so we have to be realistic, right? How much we're going to achieve on the Hasbara level and explaining ourselves and dealing with those optics, of course, is important, but we shouldn't let that type of conversation, the TikTok conversation, right? Change the way we act. If we have a moral imperative to defend ourselves against Hamas, the fact that there are unpleasant images, which of course are unpleasant, and they speak to a moral complexity, there's no doubt, but that shouldn't stop us from doing what it takes to save our people. Let's throw into the equation the hostages, which of course is a moral dilemma. Right now we're hearing talk of a hostage release deal, which would of course bring potentially thousands of convicted terrorists, or at least known terrorists, back into the mix to potentially perpetrate more crime, like what we saw with the release of Sinwar and October 7th, of course. And so there are two questions here, really. There's, number one, the release of the known criminals, the known terrorists, and there's also the objective of getting our own Jews, non-Jews, but our own hostages back home. Um, it's a horrific moral dilemma that we have to deal with right now. Uh, unprecedented in many ways. I mean, this war is unprecedented in a lot of ways for the starters that we're fighting an enemy that's literally hiding underneath their civilians. I mean, it's not just within their civilians, it's underneath. It's almost unprecedented in terms of the, certainly in the scope that we have to deal with. And of course, that they're using our human shields uh, from the captives. I, the way I frame this is you have to think about why we're going to war. We're going to war to protect, to provide security for the Israeli citizens. And you have to think short-term and long-term as well. And that's a complex equation because you have to think in terms of well, what can you accomplish given the reality on the ground. And we set out two goals, to dismantle Hamas's power and to bring home the hostages. Both of those fit into the broader goal that I just mentioned, which I think is one big goal. So you have to be realistic and ask yourself, okay, in short term and long term, what's the harm going to be? Um, that's a balance because you could say that in the short term, certainly, well, we want to protect all of Israel's citizens. There's a certain group of citizens right now, 136, that are very gravely endangered, and we need to do something about them and prioritize them over the general population, the general concern. I have a hard time saying that because I think that we saw from the Shalit deal and the previous deals, which 
I think were disastrous in many ways. I mean, I felt that way at the time, but I understood why we did it. And, you know, you can understand, of course, why people can think differently on this issue. And I have a very hard time swallowing the idea that we're going to give in to these terrorist claims or these terrorist demands in a way which I think we've seen, it just endangers us short-term and long-term. So, you know, I, I very much care about the hostages. I find myself time, at times, I think many Israelis do, just randomly crying throughout the day when you think about what's going on. I know two of the parents. Um, you know, it, it's a horrible situation. My own inclination, though, is that we need to be thinking about uh, the broader security needs of the nation as a whole. But that doesn't mean, you know, we should treat the hostages as if they're dead. Some way, people talk about that sometimes. I think it's a terrible way of thinking about it. So I think that's the framework we need to think about it. But I have a hard time actually making a judgment call on this because I don't think we know, the average citizen, what the army and the government knows. I mean, you find out it's a small country and all of a sudden you meet someone you know, who was serving Gaza, comes home for three days and he's telling you like, yeah, we know where this guy was or is, or but you know, there's a lot of information out there. So it's very hard for me to make that call, but I think we need to be honest given the reality in February 1st, what can we accomplish in this war and, and think about that in those terms. There is of course the phrase that the IDF is the people's army and many of those who are taken were soldiers or are soldiers. And I wonder if there's some kind of ethical thinking which turns everyone into soldiers, every Israeli into soldiers. And does that put everyone in a slightly different category? Does that make the cost of a soldier's life different than a civilian's life? It's interesting in the ethical literature, general ethical literature, you see that sometimes um, philo philosophers say that soldiers' lives are dispensable, so to speak, because that's their moral duty is to fight and, and to be killed or to risk to being killed. I don't feel that way at all. Um, I certainly think in a country where you have mandatory conscription to the army, everyone's drafted, or at least in theory, everyone is drafted, uh, which is another issue we have to deal with here in Israel. Uh, but the fact that we have mandatory conscription means that we have a moral responsibility to take care of the, these soldiers. So I'm not against making um, security risks and decisions when you go to whether it's an operation or even a prisoner trade per se, I'm not against per se, in order to bring back these boys and girls or these men and women, right? there are many reservists as well here, uh, and bring them home. Uh, I think that there is a moral imperative to do that. Uh, but I would make a distinction though between those that are alive and those that are tragically dead. I'm very against this idea that we're gonna release people from jail, known terrorists, to bring back bodies for burial. Um, you know, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But when it comes to bringing someone home alive, um, you know, I, I do understand that argument. And reasonable people are going to disagree on this issue. And what's important is that we establish a moral framework that we can have this debate about and understand, of course, the reality and be an honest understanding of the reality and then come to a decision. Who are the leading voices of our time? We mentioned, of course, uh, Rav Goren in, of the past. Who is the person that people are turning to right now, that the IDF is turning to right now? Ooh, um, you know, it's not entirely clear. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, you can argue different ways. A lot of who the IDF is turning to right now are the lawyers who have to try to protect our soldiers in international courts and our leaders in international courts. And certainly international law is impacted in some way by moral thinking. 
Uh, that's complex though, because international law is not proven to be a particularly effective means of bringing justice to the world or preventing horrific things in many different countries around the world. Uh, but there's no doubt that the lawyers are impacting uh, the way that we fight war. There's a certain value to that. Uh, there's a group of uh, philosophical uh, philosophers who serve as sort of informal advisors uh, to the IDF, um, and they're certainly involved in that conversation. And I think in the public discourse, you know, you, you find interesting writings from the rabbinic world as well. Uh, you can find Rabbi Asher Weiss or Rabbi Yuval Sherlow, um, Rabbi Yaakov Ariel. There, there are others who I think are trying to um, give some opinions on these issues. What I tried to do in the book, and I, I think this has to be done, is to create a dialogue between the Jewish conversation and the general ethical conversation, meaning the rabbinic conversation and the Israeli conversation, along with the conversation that's going on in uh, philosophical circles and in legal circles around the world. That is so needed in my mind. I mean, it's needed in Jewish ethics in general, including areas I work with in my day job, with Amatai, with medical ethics and other areas, but also in this realm uh, as well, because uh, we need to be talking in the same type of language and create some type of shared moral framework to think about these issues. And despite the great, actually, contributions, I think, that we saw from people like Rabbi Gorin and others over the decades, there's been very little dialogue with the broader ethical discourse. And that's been harmful to us. That's been harmful to our population. That's been harmful the way we present ourselves to the world. And my hope is the book's now out in English and it's coming out in Hebrew in the next few months, is that uh, we can contribute a little bit to that conversation by creating that discourse between the rabbinic and Jewish world and the ethical uh, world. Thank you so much, Shlomo, for joining me in our Jerusalem office to raise the, the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to What Matters Now. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next week, shalom. <laughs>